IB Talk, the global insurance industry podcast presented by Insurance Business. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest IB Talk, the insurance industry's global podcast. I'm Paul Lucas, IB's managing editor, and here's a question for you. What are you doing while listening to this podcast? Uh, Chances are you're not sat with your headphones on listening solely to what we have to say. You're finding a way to juggle this listen with another activity, work, driving, whatever it may be. Uh, Technology, you could say, is helping you to multitask and get things done faster, and that ability has become arguably more important than ever as more of us work from home and try to juggle work with our regular lives and try desperately to avoid one creeping into the other. Uh, For most people, that's been a struggle, but there is a solution in the form of smart working. And today, my guest is going to delve into that topic and a lot more on top. He is the CEO of AXA Commercial, John Walker. John, welcome to Why We Talk. Hi, Paul, and delighted to be here with you. Uh, so, John, before we dive into smart working, I want to turn the clock back uh, because you certainly made a fast start to your career. Uh, tell us how your career got started because you had quite the early introduction to management. Yeah, I, I did. And that is turning the clock back quite some time, Paul. So um, I I started my uh, career in the travel industry Actually, I spent the first few few years working for a number of travel organisations, um, the first of which was Thomas Cook. Thomas Cook were based uh, in Peterborough, which was the nearest city to home for me at the time. And I joined a, a management uh, scheme straight from school, actually, which gave me the opportunity to spend a number of months in different uh, parts of of the business. Um, I settled in part of the organisation, uh, which was basically the front end, so um, selling holidays and flights to uh, to customers. And at the age of 18, I decided to apply for a team leader role, managing um, a group of individuals that worked uh, that worked evenings. Um, and at the age of 18, I think it's fair to say um, the rest of the team were older than, than I was, more experienced, more knowledgeable. So stepping into management at that stage was a real leap of uh, leap of faith. I was fortunate the person I worked for very much had a mentality that, you know, if you're good enough, you're old enough. And so they gave me the first opportunity um, into um, into the world of, of management and uh, and leading leading people. So, yeah, that's where it all started many many years ago. And and how did you cope with that at such an, an early age? I mean, what would I guess maybe the the main challenges that you faced in in that position, and and how did you overcome them? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I think the the first thing I would uh, I would say is I learnt. Um, I learned a lot about uh, about myself very very quickly. I also learned that actually much of leading people is is very much adopting some really simple um, principles. Most of which I would say are, pr- are probably common sense. Uh, and the most fundamental one at the heart of all of that is just about treating people with respect and how you yourself would want want to be treated. Um, and so I realised 
early on that uh, if I dealt with people and and talked to people and communicated with people with that principle uh, very much firmly in in mind um, that that helped that helped enormously. I think humility is also an, an important quality. Um, I recognised early on that I certainly wasn't anywhere near being the uh, the the finished article and spent a lot of time talking to people on the team finding out about them finding out about what motivated what motivated them and and, and interestingly because that first foreign into management was looking after people that effectively were working um, late afternoons and into the evenings what I quickly realized was most of those people had very busy, personal lives and were balancing work and home in some cases looking to supplement income in other cases whilst uh, while studying so spending that time with people individually to understand their circumstances understand what work means for them and um, managing and talking to people differently based on their own different circumstances I, I think um, was something I picked up early on and has always stood me in good stead throughout my career. There isn't a one size fits all to how you manage uh, how you manage people and, and I think as soon as you realize that um, uh, life from a leadership perspective does uh, does get easier and I was very fortunate to ultimately work with a group of people who were also prepared to uh, to to give to give me a chance and to help me actually develop my skills. So, yeah, it's a, it a combination of things. But at the heart of that, treat people with dignity and respect. Find out individually um, people's motivations, their their backgrounds, why they come to work, um, and work with them individually and collectively to find out what works for them. And if you do those things, um, you won't go far wrong, actually. Yeah, I think that's terrific advice, actually. Um, but let's let's flip back to your career because um, you spent a lot of time on the broking side of insurance before your move to AXA. Tell us a bit about that. Yeah, so um, I I actually uh, moved away uh, as part of as part of my early career in the travel industry. So move moved uh, away from uh, away from home. Um, that created some some personal challenges, so we decided to move closer back uh, back to home. And the uh, the first role I did within the insurance industry was working um, for an organisation now called BGL Group. Uh, they were then called Budget Group um, on the retail side of the uh, the, the the broking. Um, part of the industry, very much focused on uh, motor insurance predominantly, which then expanded into uh, household and other personal lines related projects. Um, I spent a bit of time there running their sales call centres, so managing teams of people responding to inquiries, looking to provide uh, motor insurance for, for people. I spent about seven years at, at BGL Group, ultimately running their contact centre operations. And I had a number of operations in the UK and also in South Africa overseas at, at, at the time. Um, 
felt naturally it was time for me to to move on and, and do something else. And I was keen that my experience at that point wasn't seen or to be limited to running contact centres. Um, and so I decided to look around. There was an opportunity at Towergate that, that came along. That was running their, what was then known as their sales and service division, their niche uh, commercial broking businesses where I was able to use a combination of some of those contact center skills, but really start to get into the commercial insurance market for the first time across lots of different businesses and different niche uh, groups. So that was um, that was an in- incredibly interesting period of, of my career. Towgate at the time were going through a significant um acquisition program the business was continuing to grow all of all of the time um, and just integrating those businesses in, into the organization in, in itself was was quite a challenge so I did a number of a number of different roles within Towergate ended up leading their their retail broking division so sort of 45 individual broking business do, businesses dotted up and down the the, the UK Again, after six years, felt naturally it was it was uh, a good time to to move on. So I did uh, I did an interim stint actually with Capita, running their insurance uh, distribution uh, business. Um, then did did uh, a short spell at, uh, at Bluefin, running their personal line side of their business, and then in two thousand and fourteen. After many years in various roles across broking, had the opportunity to move across and into AXA running, running their commercial division. And again, the opportunity to stay within the industry, but potentially on the other side of it, so to speak, was uh, was really appealing in, in terms of, again, taking that broking experience with me Um believing that that knowledge would be useful given the commercial industry is highly uh, you know distrib- distributed via brokers and, and intermediaries so I felt that experience would be useful but but a new opportunity to see and learn the uh, the, the insurer the insurer side and so that's what I've been doing since 2014. And when you look back on um, your your broking career, that's side of your your time in the sector. I mean, what do you remember most fondly, and and I guess do you miss it at all? Um, I what do I remember most fondly? Uh, I, I I actually think that the one thing that stands out f- for me, which is related to the the broking side but but also more generally is my my career i always remember the people most fondly i've been very fortunate to work with some some great people many of whom i call friends today and 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 stay in in touch with and i think you know we are a relationship based industry whether that's insurer and broker uh, whether that's broker and client whether that's broker client and insurer in a tri- tripartite way um, I think relationships is is something I've always enjoyed. Um, I think in my my time at, at Towergate, just because of the pace of change in the organisation and where we were at that time from an acquisitions perspective, I learned a huge amount both uh, about commercial insurance and and its its many different component parts, but also again 
culturally how you integrate different uh, different businesses and operationally do those things. So I would say from a learning perspective, uh, that that sort of six years at, at, at Towergate in many ways uh, will have gone on to shape what I've what I've done what I've done since. Uh, do do I do I do I miss it? Um, I really enjoy I really enjoy what I'm doing at, at AXA, and I, I don't I wouldn't say I miss it per per se. I think I I miss some of the interactions that that I had with various people uh, people along the way. The beauty of my role now, though, is I spend you know I spend a good proportion of my time interacting with with brokers um, and understanding their challenges and, and where they want to go. So in many ways, although I'm clearly no longer a, a broker, because of the level of interaction we have, it, it still gives me the opportunity to to feel that I'm very firmly ensconced in the industry. And therefore, it, to some degree, it probably helps me not miss it because I kind of inherently feel that I'm I'm talking to to brokers so so frequently. There's still an opportunity for me to use that knowledge and experience that I gained during those interactions. Well, that brings me very neatly to, to the next question I had in mind, actually, John, because I, I was wondering about your role now at AXA. Can mm. you give us some insight then into to what a typical day looks like for you? Wow, a, tip, a typical day. Over the last eighteen months, it doesn't feel like there've been too many typical days, actually. But um, what what would I say? I would say a typical day for me normally starts off um, connecting with uh, with my team. So on some days, uh, that's with um, that's with the commercial um, leadership team on other days. That's with my colleagues sat across, uh, the UK and I businesses and, and central functions. So one of the things we did very early on, actually, when, uh, when the pandemic hit is we really ramped up the level of communication that, uh, that we had across the, the leadership teams for obvious, uh, reasons, but fundamentally to make sure we, led the business effectively through a significant period of, of change. That worked so effectively, much of that we've kept in place. So it's it's definitely usual for me to be on a call with um, with one of my teams every day. That connection is about making sure everyone's okay, um, ensuring priorities are aligned, catching up on latest activity because things as as you will know move at, at pace across the industry and make any key decisions um, that it's helpful in order to move things on so that would be the first thing the second thing for me would be we have quite a significant transformation agenda within the AXA commercial business at, at the moment that's a three-year program of change that we're looking to roll out and that uh, program we are managing using agile methodology so again it's it's common for me to be either engaged with the program or members of the program team on a on a daily basis again keeping things moving my role there is to is to remove any any barriers if 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 and when they they arise and to be available for for help and advice so that would be another element um there's often key internal meetings so whether that's uh, conduct risk committees change board meetings um or, or forums forums like like that um 
broker interaction. So again, typically there wouldn't be a day goes past where there either isn't a formal scheduled meeting in in the diary, um, or whether there's uh, an opportunity to to be discussed, or sometimes issues and challenges that have been escalated that that need that need dealing with. And I think the final point for me would be we we do a lot of internal communications to our people which again is something that really ramped up at the start of the pandemic and we've kept in place so it's not unusual for me to be doing a vlog to to the teams or we look to get uh, as many people as we can on the business on what we refer to as as an all call where we'll update people we'll take we'll take q and a's so that internal interaction has also been incredibly important to keep uh, to keep in place so um, there's lots of other things beside that, but if I were to highlight the the things that typically happen most days, those those would be it, Paul. Yeah, and of course you mentioned there about sort of the, the impact of the pandemic, and you you spoke a little bit about agile work as well. So I think that mm. brings us neatly to this this area of, of smart working. Um, explain to those who perhaps haven't heard of it before what the term means. Yeah, I think. Um, and the other thing I would say about smart working is um, it, it may mean different things to different organisations. And I, I equally think that's fine as long as we're all clear with our own people and and uh, the partners we interact with, what it what it means for us. For for AXA, effectively, what it what it means is so we we see a model moving forward for the business, um, which will be. Uh, hybrid based i.e people across the business splitting their time between the office and home so smart working is effectively about saying we want individuals um, to be empowered to make smart decisions about what their working week should look like and um you know, entrust people to make the right decisions about the optimal balance about being in the office or working from from home. And if people are in a physical office, it's about having a real sense of purpose as to why they're they're there. And typically, that will be about um, collaborating. Um, it will be about meeting with their colleagues uh, to enable them to do thought leadership. That could be from an underwriting perspective to discuss a number of of complex cases, for example. And it's about connecting. It's about making sure individuals and teams feel they have the opportunity to connect. Because I do think that relationship that exists between colleagues will always be an important part as to why people uh, people work so it's it's essentially about um, doing the right things for our our people and working smartly such that we can still deliver the level of service we would uh, we would expect to deliver to our broking partners to to our customers well give us a little insight then as to to what smart working looks like at AXA, how you're sort of applying it, I guess, to your your day to day, and as you said, it's it's something that obviously is is applicable to the the wider team. So, what difference is it is it making to the team? Are you seeing them be more productive or or more, I don't know, perhaps more relaxed at work, uh, in, in enjoying their work more? What what is the difference that it's making? 
Yeah, so I would I would say it's very it's very early days is the is the first thing to to say. So I think you know the the government um, eased lockdown restrictions that or the final easing took place fairly recently on the nineteenth of of July, and of course we've gone straight into um, summer summer school school holidays and um, uh, lots of people rightly taking the opportunity to to, to take a, a break. So my view is, for us and many organisations, I think it will really be September, October time before, you know, the new normal, as it's as it's often called, starts to starts to take effect. But of course, we've been talking to our teams about smart working for some time, because what we didn't want to leave in the air was people wondering what... Um, uh, you know the new way of working would look like as and when they could people could get back to offices so what what it will look like for us practically is um, people will split their their week between working from an office um, to working from home that split may vary by by role so I think it's important that the business and our people are flexible and, and recognize that there are some types of role where it's more difficult to get to the same level of productivity at home than working in in the office and therefore again a one-size-fits-all approach isn't necessarily right across every single role and um, we will I think iterate our way through that process to understand what the point of optimal looks like. The other thing we we have started to do is to roll out new and different technology for people. So for smart working to work, people need the right technology at home and they need to be able to access the right technology in, in the office. So we've done a lot of work uh, across the entire organisation actually being mindful about the collaboration tools that that people will will need access to and getting everyone onto onto the same tool for that. Recognising, again, different roles will need different technology. Some of that will need to be more portable than others, so they can literally lift their technology from home, bring it to the office uh, with them in a in a in a smart in a smart way, and it's it's also about from a leadership perspective. We've done lots of work with our our managers across all levels to think about how do we manage people that eighteen months ago were sat in front of us five days a week and moving forward won't always be in the office when when we are, and how do we make that work? And we spend a lot of time with, with Axa as well. Um, really looking at what we've referred to as team agreements, which is getting teams of people together and saying, how do we want this to work for this team? Um, and I think that's really important because that gives people a voice to say what's what's going to work for them. And then really what we're looking to do is to marry all of that up and say, what do our people want? What does the business want? What do brokers want? What do customers want? And when you bring that together, what's the optimal answer? Um, I've been clear with our teams that we won't get to that optimal answer on day one. And I think we all need to accept that getting to smart working um, in, in, in an optimal way is going to take 
some time. He's going to take some learning. He's actually going to take getting some things wrong, and that's okay. But as as long as we're very focused on wanting to do what's right for the different stakeholder groups, then I'm confident based on what I've seen in the business over the last 18 months that we will we will get there um, over the course of the next few months, I think. There will, I, I imagine, be some people listening to this, perhaps especially among brokers who are, you know, they're, they're very relationship driven. Mm. Um, and perhaps the, the fear would be that the more we rely on technology, the more we're you know, moving away from that face-to-face, that relationship-driven dynamic, that that will actually be a negative for business. How do you respond to that? Yeah, it's um, and I would I I would both understand and share those concerns if there was a model which sort of said there will be no face to face interaction, and clearly that's not that's not going to be the case. For, for me, actually, I think there's an opportunity to reset the dial here in terms of how we do interact. And my hope, actually, is that we will value more the face-to-face in interactions that we have, rather than it being the default position for everything that I think it has been up until 18 months ago. So what, what we've now proved is it is possible to interact effective effectively virtually. It is possible for some things to be done by picking up the phone. I think what we've equally found out is email and lots of email has its place, but email is not a replacement for being able to to see people and it's not it's not a vehicle, an effective vehicle really, for strong relationship maintenance and building. So for me, we will be really thoughtful and work with brokers in a very collaborative way to understand what are the key forums where being together face to face will add real value. And let's make sure that um, those forums are in place and, and we do that. But again, with a real purpose as to why we're doing that. Um, and I think more of the BAU activity can take place effectively virtually because what one of the things I'm acutely aware of is if every meeting previously was face to face that means we've lost but all parties have lost a lot of productivity by the amount of time they've spent traveling from one meeting to the next so if we can be really focused on the value from being together and making that work, I actually think it will help everyone be more productive, and I think it will help everyone really value those those face to face meetings and make sure they have real clarity of of purpose. So, I think we have an opportunity to come out of this in a better place from a relationship perspective, rather than. Um, perhaps some people being concerned that it will feel like we're going backwards. I don't think it needs to be that way at all. And of course, another part of smart working is, I guess, from a management perspective, is is having trust in in your colleagues, your your team members Mm. to to handle certain tasks. Um, But it can be very tempting, of course, can't it, to think always, you know, I know best or I'll I'll do the best job of this, so I'll just handle it myself. Um, How do you, as a manager, get away from that aspect and yeah. truly um, allow yourself to, to delegate yeah it's, it's, it's another it's another great question um, so if, if I if, if I wound the clock back to the end of March 
2020 uh, when you know we had to get people working from from home quickly uh, ca- candidly for for us and a, and pretty much for every business out there that wasn't used to um, used to operating remotely or certainly on that level there was a big leap of faith actually from both the management and leadership of those organizations and the people because we weren't able to set up new ways of working perfectly overnight again that took some time to evolve what i personally learned from that leap of faith is again if you put your people first and recognize they're all facing individually different circumstances in working from from home um if if you treat people with respect and with dignity, they will pay that back, um, and they will pay that back by yes, wanting some flexibility in how they work from home because they may be homeschooling, for example. Um, but what I saw was some brilliant brilliant examples across our organisation where, you know, people were splitting their days with their partners, so. They could look after children in the morning and, and the afternoon. People were logging on early. People were logging off off late. So that that told me you can trust people to do the right thing, and the vast majority of people know what the right thing is. So I think that's been incredibly helpful in itself. Moving forward, of course, we want people to have as normal a working week as, as they can, when they are working from from home, which is why you've got to get the technology right. The team agreements is helpful because part of that team agreement will be people in management roles agreeing and being clear on how they are going to connect, what a check-in looks like, what a performance review looks like. And I think setting uh, the stall out there is incredibly helpful. I think the other key component is be really clear about the, uh, the the key measures by which you're going to run the business. Now, many of those measures may not have changed, but how you get to the MI to tell you that everything's as it should be potentially has changed. So making sure you've got the right MI in place and the right dialogue around that is incredibly important. And I think there's a big element of this as well for managers and leaders. You've, you've, you've got to lead by example. So, uh, you know, if, if we genuinely want people to work in a smart way, we have to do that ourselves. We have to role model it. And when I sat down with my team, we talked through our team agreement. We were very aware that we were setting the tone in some respects for the rest of of the organization. So, you know, we set our stall out that very few meetings, for example, would require us all to be in a room at the same time, and that most of the meetings we had could happen in a smart way, a smart way meaning some of us might be in the office, some of us might be at home, and some of us might be in another AXA, AXA office. So, again, leading from the front here is, in, is incredibly important but my underpinning message would be manage people on the basis of of trust don't fall into the trap of trying to set up smart working based on what you think the small minority of people might do 
focus on what you know the vast majority of people will do because most of us will have seen that in abundance over the last 17 months or so. Yeah, and of course, one other element here, and I think you've touched on it a little bit, is is that work-life balance. Mm. Um, over the past year, of course, while many of us have, have embraced remote working, for a few yeah. of us, it's been perhaps you know a, a little bit difficult to switch off because there's no clear separation anymore between work and home. So how are you counteracting that? Um, so, yeah, they, this I have a lot of empathy for, for this because from a personal perspective, um, I would say I got the first nine, nine months uh, wrong, actually. Um, so I, I spent sort of 14 hours a day um, pretty much in the same room in, in the house, back-to-back Teams calls, um, believing I was resilient and would just uh, would would just sort of you know uh, work work my way through that. It, it, interestingly, at the very beginning of this year, that um, that approach actually personally caused me some health issues as a direct result of not um, not getting that work life balance right. So. Having had that experience, I now um, and I would I would encourage everyone else to think about a routine that works for them. But I make sure I um, I get some exercise every day now, even if that's just fifteen or twenty minutes, and I try and include fresh air with within that. Never underestimate the power of being outside and just having a bit of uh, a bit of thinking time. Whether you think about work or not, I think is is irrelevant get some exercise in and avoid if you can switching your your laptop or ipad or whatever device it is back on later on in the evening which again i was perhaps guilty of in in the first few months of of lockdown and again as as leaders we have to lead by example you know if you the, the risk is if we send our team's emails late at night, even if we say you don't need to respond, um, that's that's not role modelling what a good work-life balance looks like. So there's always exceptions where something urgent needs to be dealt with. That's fine and recognised. But, you know, lead by example by not being on emails and certainly sending emails late in, into, the, into the evening. Um, it's And then it's for everyone... To do what works, what works for for them, and and for that, I don't think there's a hard and fast rule. Other than do recognise your physical and, and mental health do need to be uh, do need to be taken care of in order to make you more effective in the time that you are working. I think working long and hard ultimately affects productivity to the level that I'm not sure you get through more work in the long run. To be honest. Yeah, no, I think that's a great point. And uh, just before we wrap things up, John, uh, well, we're on, I guess, the subject of work-life balance in a way. Um, when you are free from work, um, you are, of course, a, a huge Aston Villa fan. Um, yes. Tell us about how your fandom began and, and, and what's been the highlight of, of being a villain. Oh, it won't take me long to talk about the highlight. <laughs> well, that's that's for sure. Um so that what why why am I an Aston Villa fan? That's a really easy one to answer. It's uh, it's a it's a family thing. Um, my dad was an Aston Villa supporter. He was uh, his father was an Aston Villa supporter. So it was I guess it was 
it was kind of in in the in the blood and you know my dad would take me to the Holt end at, at Villa Park from a very a very young age and it 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 kind of uh, it kind of sticks and it's really interesting because you know I now have a 24 year old daughter who often says to me you know dad your team isn't very good those aren't the exact words she uses but they're the words I will use for this podcast <laughs> why don't you support someone else and doesn't get why it doesn't quite work that way um so uh, yeah that's that's why that's why I'm an Aston Villa fan that's why I will always be an Aston Villa fan um my highlights I was probably slightly too young to really appreciate the early 80s when they won the European Cup um, and, you know, what what was then the sort of first division championship, now the, now the Premier League. So, unfortunately, I, I didn't really fully appreciate that. But my, my biggest highlight, therefore, would be being at Wembley Stadium uh, in 2019 when they won the playoff final to get back to back to the Premier League. That that was a fantastic day out, so much riding on it. We got the right result. I was there the year before with family members when they, they lost. It was still a great day out, but winning and losing does make a difference to the journey home. That much I do I do know. Um, but the the atmosphere that day was uh, was was electric. I've never known anything like it. So that would definitely be my highlight as a as a Villa fan. Yeah, you talked about the struggles a little bit there, but you know they did have a really really strong season last year. What are your what are your hopes for the season ahead? And of course, your your star player um, Jack Grealish, uh, mm. his future is in doubt at the moment. Yeah. Supposedly, at the, yeah. at the time that we're recording, a hundred million uh, yeah. bid is supposed to have been uh, been lodged yeah. for him. So, uh, what are your hopes with with Grealish and the, and the new season in general? So. Uh... So my hope, it my hope is that Grealish stays. Um, I don't think he will. Is is my is is my gut instinct on it? Um, and as much as I will be really disappointed to disappointing to see him go, uh, I don't think there are many Villa fans that could argue. Uh, that he's been a very loyal servant to to the club, and you know he's an incredibly talented footballer who quite rightly wants to go on and, and win things, and he has a greater degree of certainty of doing that at Manchester City than he does at at Aston Villa. Is is the harsh is the harsh reality? I'd love to see him stay because I think the owners um, have a proven model actually with their um, NBA ownership of the Milwaukee Bucks of building around their star their star player um so i'd love for that to be the outcome i think it's looking increasingly un- unlikely um regardless as to whether jack stays or goes my hope for the season actually i'd like to see us get to the the edge of the european places i think we're nudging the point where we should be looking to fight for a top 6 finished albeit probably in in sixth position and it would be great to have a really good cup run uh, along alongside that and underneath that I, I hope the club just continues to build for the for the future I really like what the new owners the new CEO and the manager has done over the last two or three two or three years they have a plan they're steadfastly staying and sticking to that that plan and I I have a lot of respect for that actually so a decent finish um with or without Grealish they'll spend the money 
if he goes, I, I have I have no doubt. But I think he's one of those players you can't you can't replace him. Uh, but I think he'll go. Unfortunately. Yeah, well, I mean, as a as a Liverpool fan, John, I just want to say thank you for <laughs> not mentioning the seven two hammering you gave us last year. Um, but um, John, if anybody wants to reach out to you on the back of this discussion, how can they get in touch? Yeah, no, very very happy for anyone to 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 do that. I'm on uh, I'm on LinkedIn, so uh, look look out for me there under John Walker J O N. Um, and also uh, happy for anyone to reach out via email. So uh, John, J-O-N again, dot Walker at axa-insurance.co.uk. John, it's been fantastic to have you with us. Um, to everybody listening, thank you for joining us as well. Uh, and we'll catch you in the same place for more smart talks here on IB Talk. Thank you for listening to IB Talk. For the latest episodes, be sure to follow us on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Apple Podcasts.